Hello everyone, it's December 24th, 2019. It's the last episode of the year, but before we close it out, we're going to talk to Emery Stagmer about that Starliner timing problem. It's not just what you do, but when you do it. How about a Spaceflight podcast right now? So, lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 241 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. And I'm Emery. Yay, so we have a guest yay. today uh, jumping in right from the beginning, actually, to talk to us about our main uh, topic we're going to be speaking about later. Well, in about like two minutes, I guess. I did have some banter prepared. I was going to ask about if any of you have seen the uh, fourth season of The Expanse at all. But uh, I'll save that for next week because I'm happy to talk about it whenever. <laughs> all right. I'll try to catch up on all the expanse now. Yeah, you got two weeks. <laughs> all right. So th this is Emery Stagmer for those of you who don't recognize him. Uh, he's been on Tomorrow a bunch of times and he's been on our show just once so far, I think, right? Yep. So uh, Emery is AKA Vax Headroom on Twitter. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself real quick for those who aren't familiar? So uh, in my day job, I'm a satellite flight systems software and systems and software software engineer. I've been doing satellite uh, flight control software since uh, 96, uh, almost exactly 23 years ago this week. And most notably, I was the, I was the lead flight software engineer on the LCROSS program that found water on the moon in yeah. 2009. Mm. Yeah. Uh, rarefied air, my friends. Rarefied yeah. <laughs> air. <laughs> I have to say kind of upfront, I do work for a national grade aerospace contractor and I'm not here on behalf of my employer uh, and what I'm and I nor do I work for Boeing so what I'm relating here is going to be you know kind of generic how to spacecraft handle time kind of give you a, a deep dive into uh, how we manage time uh, internally on a you know free-flying satellite um, but I do not have any specific knowledge of of Boeing's, you know, particular yeah. implementation of this. So, so uh, David, why are we talking about spacecraft time? So the reason for that is because it seems to be uh, the cause of the issue that we had with Starliner a couple of days ago. It appears to be just about timing. Now, I think it's good that we have Emery here because he's going to explain exactly, you know, how that all works. I don't have any like real understanding other than something happened when it wasn't supposed to, <laughs> and uh, and for that reason, the Starliner was not able to get to the proper orbit to dock with the space station. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Uh, otherwise it was a successful launch, right? Like um, they were they were really optimistic on the feed. Um, it was really cool. Uh, was it Kerbal Academy was was narrating the launch uh, live? I thought that was pretty neat. <laughs> it's it's cool they brought in a YouTuber to do launch announcements or launch narration. But yeah, uh, it was the first flight with a dual engine Centaur in ages. I think in, in over a decade, right? Yeah, I think it's uh, something like fifteen years. I think I saw quoted. 15 years. Well, then the other thing was, this is the first dual-engine Centaur that's launched on top of an Atlas V, oh. which is interesting. And then, Dennis, did you want to talk about the aeroskirt? Because it looks pretty funny. Yeah, that was one of the first things I, uh, you know, I'm sure most people thought about whenever they would look at the uh, Starliner got integrated on top of the Atlas was that it looks like it's got this funny little thing with a gap sitting around it. And it was an aeroskirt uh, that was placed there apparently to kind of dampen some vibrations, I believe, near that were getting a little too close to the capsule during sort of theoretical tests and whatnot. And, uh, you know, not only did the launch go well, but, you know, the aeroskirt performed how they wanted it to. The dual engine Centaur fired great. Seemed like everything went very nominal, at least for the launch itself. So ULA has been getting a lot of... Uh, 
thumbs up uh, in social media after this launch. So we have a, a nominal launch, and then what happened? Once the Starliner separated from the second stage, and it was meant to go on its way and you know do its thing, it was not doing the right thing. Uh, so this was something new that I learned. I was not familiar with the term dead band. Uh, I didn't know what that meant, but now I do, thanks to Richard Durden, who explained it to me. Mm. Um, but essentially, it had constricted its dead band because it thought that this was the time to do that. And what that is, is is sort of like, you know, a little bit of wiggle room that you have before you have to make any correction. So it was making these trajectory corrections when it didn't need to do that. So it was actually expending a lot of fuel as a result of that. And that's why it didn't have enough to get to the proper orbit, you know, for docking. So that was all because of, you know, bad timing, essentially, um, which is what I'm hoping will have explained to us in a little bit more detail. So one of the things that I noted during the launch after it separated, they weren't showing this on the NASA feed, but you could see it uh, when they showed the control room. There was a, mm -hmm. a display that had basically a, a computer-generated version of the Starliner up on the left-hand side of the master you know, screen in mission control, and it was firing the thrusters quite rapidly. So these okay. are the attitude control thrusters that are trying to not, not necessarily change its trajectory, but are trying to keep it pointed in a certain what they call attitude. So that's basically how, this, how the spacecraft is pointing and how fast it's moving in that pointing frame where it's trying to get from uh, where it is now to where it's supposed to be. The dead band means that, you know, I'm trying to point at this particular location in space, the interesting thing is that spacecraft never are completely still, right? Mm -hmm. They're always, mm. they're always, they're always drifting left, right, up, down, rotation, y'all pitch and roll, right? They're always drifting in that. And if you restrict them to, let's say, plus or minus five degrees off that center point, well, that's easy, right? You just bounce, kind of bounce off. You fire the thruster whenever you get to the edge of that five degrees and then you come back slowly, come back the other way. And when you get to the other edge of the f other five degrees, you bounce back. So you can imagine, imagine it kind of slowly oscillating back and forth. But if you go down to a very tight dead bed band, maybe 10th of degree or a few arc seconds, now every time you touch the edge of the dead band, you've got to fire a thruster, right? So the thrusters just fire constantly. And that's what we were seeing mm -hmm. on the screen in, during the after it had separated. And I kind of raised an eyebrow and went, that doesn't look right. You know, they shouldn't be, <laughs> they shouldn't be firing the thrusters that quickly at that point in the, you know, and that's exactly, in fact, uh, what what had happened. So with the thrusters firing this often, is this because the spacecraft thought that it was coming in for like, you know, the final approach? Because I don't know why it would need to fire them that often either. You could have, you know, five degrees, as you said, and it wouldn't be a big deal. I don't know why it has to have, you know, such a narrow range when it's still maybe, you know, a couple hundred miles away. Right. And so either that or you do need to be in a pretty precise dead band when you're going to do a, a change in velocity, mm -hmm. a delta V thrust. Um, because yep. you want to be pointing in the right direction, right? And so you would gradually tighten the dead band down, maybe from five degree, 10 degrees to five degrees to one degree to a tenth of a degree, and then you would fire the dead band thrusters. So it, it seems from the descriptions that I've heard, and this is real speculation on my part, that it jumped from, you know, its, its separation tip-off rates tried to directly go to a very tight dead band. And you can't do that. You have to kind of gradually reduce the, the, the movement. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're blowing thrust real hard trying to get within that dead band and you're always overshooting the other side. I, I think that the dead band was a resultant cause of the mission clock being incorrect. And then I think there were two other things that, that were also effects of that 
of that clock being wrong. One was that it looked like it pointed itself in an odd orientation. It looked like it was pointed out of plane, which which seems pretty weird. And then also um, they ended up delaying their actual orbital insertion burn, or, or at least it, it happened late. And I think all those things together resulted. I, I wonder if any one of those would have been a big issue. And I think all of them together might have been what uh, what precluded actually uh, rendezvousing with the space station. Yeah, yeah, kind of a perfect storm. That's how it that's how it feels. And when they described the commanding gap, where they they realized what was going on and they tried to tell it to do it manually, then they couldn't because they didn't have yeah. the the uh, the data relay satellites, the TDRS satellites, in a position where they could you know actually send commands to the spacecraft. So that's a little bit of a you know. And again, yep. it, in the in the post-launch press conference, the astronauts who are slated to, you know, fly on the first crew mission, they actually said, well, if we'd been there, we would have just taken control. We just, you know, snapped off the automatic control and just, you know, commanded it to the right thing and, and it would have been done, right? But they couldn't do that remotely because they lost, they had this gap in their commanding, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. capability. So from what I understand, right, so to tie this kind of all together, the problem was that the spacecraft thought, it was at a different part in its trajectory because the mission elapsed time was off. The clock was mm-hmm. off. And as a result, it was not dealing with these dead bands appropriately because, again, it just wasn't in the right space. It had, like, skipped a part of its, uh, skipped a part of its uh, automated sequence, like it had jumped ahead in time. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we talk about a little bit of, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how a spacecraft keeps time because it's, it's really integral to this question, Right. When you turn when you turn a processor on on a spacecraft, all it knows is that oh, I've just come alive. I'm going to start counting seconds. Right. Hmm. So it has a clock that counts forward, and all you know is the elapsed time from the last power on. That's your mission elapsed time. Right. But it has no idea what time that is in real world time. Hmm. Right. What is it in GMT? It has no idea. So the ground has to tell it. The ground has to say, here's a correlation between your mission elapsed time and GMT, you know, the atomic clock on Earth that is the reference for, you know, zero hour on, you know, on the planet, right? The spacecraft don't have either, they don't have that reference, nor do they have an atomic clock of the resolution on Earth. Right. So not only do you not have an absolute time to synchronize to, you don't even have a perfectly accurate relative time to say one second has mm-hmm. elapsed. It might be, you know, 0.99999 or 1.0001, but it's going to be plus or minus a couple of microseconds per whatever the time frame is, depending on how, you know, how good your oscillators are. And so those those clocks will drift and they'll drift over temperature. So, you know, they run a little bit, they run a little bit faster when they get hotter and they run a little bit slower when they get colder or vice versa. I don't, I think they run faster when they get hotter. It just, you know, they, they have more energy and so they run faster. And so not only do you not know where you are in absolute time, you don't really even know exactly how long it's been since the last one second interval, right? I mean, you, you know it pretty good, but you don't know it perfectly. And that time will drift you know, the longer you go before you re-synchronize things, the farther off you'll get. So somehow that correlation between when did my power when did my power turn on and, you know, what does the ground think it is in, in GMT, somebody has to send that up. And so it 
it looks to me like they were trying to acquire that number from the Atlas V and somehow did it wrong. Hmm. So that's not something I've heard somebody do before, but it may be more common than I think it is. I don't know how else to say that. Uh, it, that's, a, that's an interesting you know, reach back into the Atlas V uh, as we have this quote from uh, Jim Chilton, the senior VP for uh, Boeing's Space Launch Division. So that that's interesting, but you so you do that's but that's why you have to try and correlate it, and then you have that correlation. So you add the correlation factor to your mission elapsed timer, and that'll give you an onboard spacecraft time. Then you generally would also apply some kind of a drift correction factor uh, over time to say, well, how long has it been, you know, from time A to time B, and that should have been X amount of seconds, and the spacecraft thinks it's been X plus or what minus some you know small delta. And then you can say, okay, apply a drift correction factor every second so that you can keep that one second tick in sync. The best way to do that is with GPS. So if you get a GPS pulse from the GPS receivers, that's going to give you an edge of a pulse, electrical pulse, that the processors are going to latch to. And they can say then, oh, it's been one second since the last pulse. And then you get a, a data packet from GPS that says, and here's the time at the tone. So here's the time at the last pulse, exactly within sub-microsecond uh, accuracy. GPS is just time. That's all GPS is. That's the only thing it does. Highly accurate time. You have to have multiple receivers in order to be able to know where you are and apply the appropriate delta times from how where you know those satellites should be and how far away you think they are, and it'll triangulate. So you have to have at least three. You really need four. You're better off having more than that so that you can cross-correlate all the incoming timing pulses from the satellites to know where you are in space, and then you can kind of back-apply you know, a delta time of speed of light travel from the satellite. However, at this point in the mission, I would think that they wouldn't rely on having a GPS, you know, position because you'd have, like I said, you'd have to know that you had acquired at least four GPS satellites in order to have a precise location and timing. So I wouldn't think that they would have relied on that at this point in the mission. So they're probably doing dead reckoning from their own onboard timers, right? With the appropriate correlations and drift, cor drift correction factors. So mm -hmm. if, they, if they pulled the wrong correlation factors, then their whole, their whole time scale on the spacecraft is, is shifted by some, you know, number. That seems to fit the the uh, the information that we have. So could the drift really be that big? That's mm -hmm. yeah. This is what I'm thinking. Like it seems like it's not a problem with you know these minute measurements, but something was off by several minutes or yeah, I guess, yeah, probably by several minutes. Yeah, no, no. I don't think the drift. I mean, that drift is something that you'd have to okay. you know implement. But I, I don't think that the drift yeah. was the problem here. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, and then y you mentioned something about inheriting time from Atlas or from Centaur. Um, I didn't realize that that was something that they did. Uh, that's a quote that we have from Jim Chilton, and okay, yeah, like I don't realize I didn't realize that 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 was something that they would have done. Uh, that would have been some kind of digital communications. Maybe they got a you know a flipped number or flipped bid, or they pulled the wrong value, or I don't know. I mean, they had never done this test with a flying atlas. They had done this test with a simulated flying atlas. And so it's a little bit different. <laughs> so that's an interesting that's an interesting huh. uh, thing. I don't really know how that's done, and so I don't know which particular kind of information they were trying to pull. But if it's a uh, if it's an absolute time correlation factor, um, that would make sense. That would make more sense that they could pull the yeah. wrong value there. It's interesting that he said 
the word coefficient, which makes me think that it is related to drift. It probably thought that time was moving quicker than it actually was. Does that seem reasonable? Ah, coefficient just means a number. Um, so that, <laughs> okay. that could either be the, it could either be a time correlation or it could be a, a drift correction factor. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try and read too much into that. I think it's probably the okay. absolute okay. time correlation factor because they're going to have to, well, they're going to separate from the Atlas V and they're going to separate from the Centaur. So they're going to, you know, grab that once and then roll with it. Right. So it may have been that, you know, there was, there could be, there was an error. It seems to be that they, they grabbed the wrong number and that the numbers maybe run differently when the thing is actually flying versus when it's, you know, in a simulator or sitting on the ground. So it's interesting. Um, yeah, it's an interesting problem. It's just kind of realizing how many different pieces of, of information it takes to do time on a spacecraft. And all of that that I gave you is for every processor. Every yeah. processor has to do all of those things. They all have to have mission elapsed times. They may even power up at different points. They got to have different correlation factors. They got to have different drift correction factors, and they've all got to stay synchronized within microseconds. So it's a very complex problem. Um, on one of the satellites that I worked on, where we had we had seven different processors on this. Each each like subsystem had its own small processor on it. We had seven different processors on this thing, and there were at least 17 different definitions of time on that spacecraft. <laughs> Either absolute times, relative times, or delta times. It took from, you know, a, one processor to communicate with another. What was the time delta there? And so you had to apply those time deltas in order to try and get things, like I said, within microseconds. So the whole the whole concept of time on a spacecraft is very complicated. This is not a, this is not a straightforward question. So it's one of the things that I'm a little surprised that they got it wrong. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, that's, they're talking about a complex problem here. So it's, mm. it's the kind of thing that I can believe that is like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, if it, if it's actually a communication problem, I mean, like it, it must be, it must be a modes issue, right? It, it must. Could very well be. Atlas yeah. must, re yeah, Atlas must reassign it's uh the maybe commands or ids when it's in different modes yeah and so you know you you connect to that network and you say hey uh is there uh is there a timer listening in hey i need this time so it it sounds like it comes to, i mean obviously it's an interface problem which is really the toughest part of any uh engineering project oh, yeah. <laughs> but like it sounds like it's not it's not even mainly a time problem it sounds like it's mainly a communication problem which is mm -hmm. right uh, a whole different bucket of worms. And it, it seems weird, though, because um, another quote from Jim Chilton is that they did a whole bunch of integrated tests and they didn't, you know, yeah. they didn't come up with any problems. Mm -hmm. So yeah. apparently this is something they tested for, didn't have a problem then. So something different on, you know, an actual launch. Yeah. Well, it says this doesn't, this doesn't look like an Atlas problem. So it will be really interesting when they finally kind of get to the bottom of it and let us know what happened. Because I kind of thought it was, you know, going to be a simple problem, some, you know, little, like, goofy oversight, but apparently it mm -hmm. might be more complex than that. And I had read that it probably will delay launching, you know, like, actual crew for, like, another six months or something, which really surprises me. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, that's at least one source that says that, so. Well, the other thing, as I said, the astronauts actually had said in the post-launch press conference that this was something that they could have absolutely could have fixed. They would have noticed mm -hmm. it right away and, and could have just taken over and run the sequences or flown the spacecraft manually. You know, they just can stick it, you know. Yeah. They're they're they're, they're trained mm -hmm. to do that, you know, drive it drive it with a joystick if you have to, you know. <laughs> Pretty old school, but that's why right. the humans on board make such a difference. 
because you can do things you exactly. can't do with automation. So do you think if this had happened with the astronauts on board, they they would have like actually grabbed a joystick, like that's how they would have corrected it? Because it seems that doing it manually might actually expend more fuel just because I would think that you couldn't be as good as a computer at navigating the spacecraft. Um, that's what they had said, that, that you know, their first line of defense would have been, you know, to kick off the sequences. Hey, we see something's not right here. Stop the automation. Start it when it's supposed to run. Right. And there would have been no command lag because the astronauts would have been on board. So they wouldn't have had this Tedris problem. Hmm. But they said, yeah, worst case, we just, you know, turn it all off and take the stick and do it ourselves, you know. So uh, they were supposed to be on orbit for what, like a week? Uh, oh, eight days. And they ended up ending the mission after two days. Um, they actually just landed this morning. We record on Sunday mornings, of course. So um, it happened uh pretty early this morning, but before we recorded. And in the show notes will be links to uh, infrared video of of the capsule actually landing, as well as uh, re-entry video that somebody shot from the ground with a cell phone. You can see the, the streak across the sky. Oh, that's cool. I hadn't seen that. Oh, yeah. It's good, isn't it? <laughs> I had gotten up to get ready to go to church this morning and popped on NASA TV just in time to see the capsule oh. like the last mile and touchdown, you know, oh, a couple thousand feet and touchdown. <laughs> Great timing. Good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. So they, they ended the mission early, but Dennis, you have a list of the objectives that they intended to accomplish and, and did accomplish. Yeah. Right. So, um, after this whole clock kerfuffle, uh, they were able to <laughs> eventually put it in a stable orbit. And like you just said, right, they reduced their mission to just a couple days, but you know, they still had it up in orbit and figured, okay, well, what can we still test while we're doing this? And so one thing that they did was establish a communication link with uh, the ISS. Uh, they used their uh, VESTA system to uh, feed position data to the uh, inertial and GPS navigation devices on board. They performed a simulated rendezvous abort, which I kind of just think about what that would look like in my head if I tried that in Kerbal and how kind of funny that would look just <laughs> by yourself in space and, uh, you know, extending and retracting the docking mechanism. And so everything, you know, all of those worked well, the launch worked well, and, you know, it touched down well, all three parachutes deployed. So that was good news. So <laughs> yes, um, right. obviously not the best or rather the off nominal aspect of the mission is clearly dominating the news, but there still was a lot of good things that came out of this, I think. Well, one bad thing is that uh, I believe they had Christmas presents on board, right? So they're not oh, getting no. Christmas. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> well, at least, at least we recovered them and they didn't burn up. That would have sucked. Yeah. Mm. They'll just have a late Christmas, I guess. I, I love when they put surprises on, on missions like the uh, Ben and Jerry's in the uh, deep <laughs> freezer. That's <laughs> pretty cool. Mr. Stagmar, you got any anything to add that you'd like to talk about? No, I think I'm good. Thank you. I'm really happy <laughs> for you being here because uh, all of that stuff is not anything that we mm -hmm. could read about researching it. And right. I thought that was so cool how you immediately, when you started talking about the clock, you used the term correlation as you were describing it because I'm like, well, wouldn't it just be an offset, right? I mean, a second's a well, second. Well, it is, but, yeah. But it's not, But aside from that little bit of, you know, your precision, whether or not you're off by, you know, a microsecond or not can yeah, yeah, matter. Yeah. It, and the time, yeah, we do, we keep, our systems keep time on board to one microsecond. And so, yeah, I know that, you know, we're just a, we're just a pretty small piece of avionics, um, this kind of national asset class stuff has got to be better than that. Mm -hmm. Although they're probably using, <laughs> honestly, they're probably using the same processors that we've used before. The, the BAE RAD 750 is a pretty typical processor. And the VXWorks operating system is, I, I have some knowledge that 
that Boeing uses that. So, you know, they're probably using the VxWorks operating system. That's what most, you know, major spacecraft are using. And then the other thing I would say is that this kind of, uh, of high-rate thruster firing, for a different reason, but essentially the, the deadband problem, I recognized immediately because we had an almost exactly the same problem on the Elcross mission and almost lost Elcross. Wow. Um, so on the Elcross mission, one of the things that we had made a decision to do is that if we lost um, access to our inertial rate measurement unit, the IMU, then we could use the d rates that the star tracker was figuring out by looking at the stars how fast we were moving. And that works perfectly fine in pitch and yaw because it's just a two-dimensional grid of pixels, right? It's just a digital camera that's trying to figure out what star pattern it's looking at. So up and down and left and right is fine. But if you think about roll, right, there's a lot of noise in the roll vector of a star tracker. And so while it can tell you pitch and yaw pretty well, when you try and incorporate roll, there's noise all over the place. So the problem was that the star tracker is not mounted in the same yaw, pitch, and roll reference frame as the spacecraft oh, no. main bus. It's yeah, off, canted of off at an angle. So when yeah. you when you three-dimensionally rotate the star tracker's X, Y, and Z into the spacecraft's X, Y, and Z, now the roll noise is in every component, right? And so we were trying to fly within a reasonable dead band, uh, like a plus or minus 10 degree dead band, I think. But because of the noise that was now induced from the roll component into all three axes, the system thought it was bouncing in and out of that dead band, even though it was 10 degrees. And we fired Ugh. the thrusters very rapidly for an entire night before the team came Ugh. back on on a uh, on console on a Saturday morning and saw that we had depleted like three quarters of our fuel. Ugh. We were within 30 minutes of losing that mission. If we hadn't come wow. on console and told the spacecraft, stop, <laughs> don't do anything, go into just go to a safe hold mode, right? Don't do anything. Don't fire the thrusters. Just sit there. Let us figure out what's going on. If we hadn't come on the console right then, 30 minutes later, we'd have been, we wouldn't have enough fuel to complete the mission. So that's why I recognized, because <laughs> I was there on console that morning. <laughs> so I, that's why I recognized those thruster firings looked like they, they were flying faster than they should have been. It looked like if you watch any of the video of the SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule docking with the space station. That's about how frequently those thrusters should have been firing, and it just looked to me like that was too too rapid for the the mode that they were in. It should have been sitting pretty quiet, right? Shouldn't have been really doing mm -hmm. very much. So yeah, yeah, it's it's fun because uh, you know most of us are familiar with these with with the basics of these systems from Kerbal Space Program and uh, Kerbal Space Program. I don't think it has any bang bang thrusters. I mean, I think you can mod it or you can change the settings to be able to do that. Um, but even the RCS thrusters are throttled, and so we don't we don't have to worry about this too much, you know, just as as game players. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's interesting how that can creep up on you. I I'll be honest, I don't have Kerbal because I have enough time sinks in my life already. <laughs> oh, for for real? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I would I would never yeah, get anything it, done, Aaron. <laughs> no, it it started sucking me back in uh, a month or two ago, and I just had to go cold turkey. I was like, you know what? There, I can't regulate my time well enough. <laughs> yeah, I have a bad enough time playing oxygen not included. All right, well, thank you, Emery. We're gonna uh, we're gonna let you go, and we're gonna continue with the rest of the show. But thank you so much for uh, 
giving us a shout and for giving us your time. Yeah, you bet. It was really fun. Like I said, uh, I told you guys ahead of time, I'm, I've just gotten uh, started listening to podcasts as I'm driving back and forth in my car to work. And so I'm catching up with the Orbital Mechanics um, and uh, great to connect with you guys again. All right. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you very much. Let's do three short and sweets. Shorts and sweet, short, short and sweet. Sorry, mm-hmm. I was just thinking about. It. I never thought about that before. Is it shorts and sweet? Well, I mean, it's that's that's definitely shorts and sweet is definitely mm-hmm. funnier because it's the attorney's general pattern, and so I I think that's the funniest. <laughs> it's kind of like passersby, you know. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's do short and sweet. And what's that first one, Ben? All right, Omega has a payload. Northrop Grumman's Omega rocket, with you know the capital A, has gotten a passenger for its maiden voyage. Saturn Satellite Networks has selected Omega to carry its NationSat communication satellite. Sorry, every time I read Omega, I, I think it needs to be pronounced Omega. Right? Yeah, that's kind of how I think of it too. This launch will demonstrate Omega's ability to service the private sector as well as the United States Air Force, who recently awarded Northrop Grumman a $792 million launch agreement. It will also play a key role in the certification process for future Air Force payloads. The inaugural launch is scheduled for the spring of 2021. Next up, ULA is selected to launch the next GOES mission. After launching all 17 operational GOES missions to date, ULA has been selected by NASA to continue the streak and launch GOES-T in December 2021 aboard an Atlas V in the 541 configuration. Operated by NOAA, GOES-T is the third in the most recent generation of GOES satellites and has had its loop heat pipe system redesigned after the same system malfunctioned on GOES-17 last year. The total cost to launch the missions estimated at $166 million. And the third one, which is also about an upcoming launch, I just realized that's the theme here. It's all just future payloads. So SpaceX announces yet another Starlink launch. So after announcing its third Starlink mission to take place in January, SpaceX has announced Starlink 4 for the same month. With the delay and rescheduling of Starlink 2 from December 30th to January, this will make for three missions within one month. And this is in keeping with the goal of 24 Starlink missions for 2020, or a total of over 1,400 satellites deployed within the year. And to achieve this, SpaceX will have to maintain an average of two Starlink launches per month. Yeah, so that's three next month, plus some some other mission. I don't remember what it is, but they're launching some other commercials. So that's four. Yeah, that's four launches next month if they keep their schedule. It, or at least four, maybe even five, but I think at least four. All right, let's do this weekend's spaceflight history. So uh, this was a, a pretty big event, so I guess the clue is easy no matter what you make it. So we got a bunch of winners. We only, we only had uh, five winners, unless I missed somebody. Okay. Well, to me, that's, I mean, I guess that's not a bunch, but that's about the maximum amount, although we've had more in the past. When we've had winners that take up two lines in the document. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, when you, when you challenge them, uh, I forget yeah. when that was earlier this year or last year, we definitely had <laughs> like yeah. 10 winners. Yep. All right. So our winners this week are Christian Lowe, Cy Kyle, Ben Hallert, Zach Banks, and Bill Russum. So the clue from last week was riding the best bird we can find. And this week in spaceflight history is December 23rd, 1968. It was Apollo 8 entering the lunar sphere of influence. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I actually listened Mm -hmm. to um, the public service broadcasting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, what's, What's the name of that? Uh, of uh, the their album? song. Well, the the album is Race for Space, and then the song. Oh, the other side. The other side. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to the other side, I mean, it's 
it's on YouTube. You can listen to it for free. My girlfriend sitting on the couch and she will attest that I started sobbing a little bit <laughs> every time. <laughs> right? Every time yeah. I I listen to that one is really good. The um the uh go no go for the lunar landing is also really good, but that one, boy, it just it it makes my heart pound and it's so, so exciting. So, uh, 55 hours and 40 minutes into the flight. This would be December 23rd at 2031 hours UTC. Apollo 8 crossed over into the lunar sphere of influence. So we probably need to talk about what SOI is. Um, most of our listeners will know, especially because most of our listeners uh, are Kerbal Space Program uh, players. Um, but basically, Apollo didn't model real world gravity right because in the real world everything in the entire universe is pulling on your spacecraft at once um, and so if you want to model orbits correctly you know quote unquote correctly or or the most accurately you have to at least account for the pull of the earth and the moon at the same time but back in the 60s we we didn't have the computing power to do that. It just wasn't practical. So instead of, you know, modeling the two nearest bodies and your spacecraft, which would be the three-body problem, they reduced it down to a two-body problem. We're only going to model the pole of the Earth or the Moon, depending on which one is more influential. And so they define these spheres of influence um, that are the boundary between where uh, the Earth's gravity is more important or the, or the Moon's gravity is more important. And they actually only modeled one of them. It's a, it's a model called patched conics where you are, uh, modeling the conical section, right? Cause, uh, orbits are all conical sections. They're either circles, ellipses, not ovals, right? Ellipses. It's a specific type of oval. <laughs> uh, ellipses, parabolas, or hyperbolas, which are all sections that you can cut out of uh, of a cone. And so they did um, patched conics where they modeled a conic a conic section, one of these shapes uh, relative to the Earth. And then once you get into the sphere of influence of the Moon, then you model that conical section based on the moon's gravity. And so 55 hours and 40 minutes into the flight, they crossed over into the moon's sphere of influence. Um, but what's really interesting is that that wasn't the point where they started modeling uh, their trajectory in the moon's, the, uh, a moon frame of reference, a Selenic frame of reference, I guess. They actually didn't do that until after they had done their last TCM, 61 hours after launch. So they waited another, uh, what would that be, six hours after they crossed over to actually change their math over. Um, that's a little detail I didn't know. And I think, I think that's pretty interesting. So, uh, we, you know, we need to talk about Apollo 8 a little bit. Of course, it was a mission of firsts. You know, this exact event that we're talking about was the first time that humans had ever entered another sphere of influence you know it's kind of a kind of a fake idea there's no real sphere of influence but you know it was the first time that that humans had ever been dominated by another body's gravity other than earth um, of course they were the first people uh, to see the far side of the moon including you know the first time that we had ever done uh, an engine burn uh, not only out of contact with the Earth, right? It wasn't just that the Earth was in the way from uh, a ground station, right? Because that happens all the time. Or, or up to that point, it had happened all the time. But this was the first time that we couldn't see them because they were behind another body. Um, and, and they did a, an engine burn, which is just 
it's terrifying <laughs> and, and amazing and glorious. Uh, they, they were the first people to orbit another body. And, you know, you can just go on and on and on and, and build all of these first. And it's just, it's really, really incredible. So uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, oh, oh, actually, I need to talk about why uh, the clue uh, applies. So the clue, the clue didn't really have anything to do with um, transitioning to the moon's sphere of influence, uh, but I thought it was a really good quote. So that was Gerald Carr actually said over the radio, you're, you're riding the best bird we can find as they gave them the go to capture around the moon. And I, I thought, I thought that was a, a nice quote to include. So um, let's, let's talk about the trip out there. You guys know how miserable this trip was, right? I had some idea. I, I didn't know it was as miserable as you're about to explain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> um, so, so basically we think of going to the moon as this incredible trip where um, you get to see the earth receding and the, and the moon approaching, but that, that wasn't the case. So first off, they were rarely in an orientation where they could see either the earth or the moon. And that's because they had to pick um, a very particular orientation for the barbecue roll, um, which is their um, passive thermal control where they rolled the spaceship so that each side of the spaceship got a chance to be in sun and then in shadow. And to do that, you have to um, be aligned perpendicular to the sun, right? Because if you roll while pointed at the sun, you're still only going to be heating half of your spacecraft at a time, uh, you know, the, the entire time. So they had to pick, you know, this particular orientation so they didn't get to see uh, the moon out the window. But even if they were pointed at the window, the windows all fogged over because um, some materials on board, I believe they were oil-based lubricants or something like that, uh, outgassed and caused a film to cover the windows so they they couldn't really see that well out the windows. So so are you saying that, that this was on the outside of the window? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean they they did end up mm-hmm. getting good photos, so I think it it must have uh, evaporated back off. Or rather it, I think it's three of the five windows what I'm seeing here. Oh, it was it wasn't all the windows, okay. Nah, yeah. There's a there was a sealant, a silicone sealant that uh outgassed and basically yeah, yeah. fogged up three of them. Yeah, cuz that makes sense because if it was on the inside, they could just wipe it off. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, like when I think of fog, I think of something that can't exist in the vacuum of space, but if it's, you know, some kind of a residue that's left over once the rest yeah. of the outgassing occurs, then yeah. yeah. Uh okay, so they they were silicone oils in a in a sealant, not a lubricant. Uh, the two side windows also fogged over to a lesser degree. So, so thank you, Dennis. And if, if that wasn't bad enough, Frank Borman got really space sick to the point where he not only vomited, but he experienced um, some pretty dramatic diarrhea. And it's it's really interesting because, you know, that's not a great thing to have happen in space. But they're, you know, they were already committed. And so they wanted to let well, I mean, they had a little bit of an argument about letting Mission Control know at all. But then once they decided to do so, they didn't want the rest of the world to know. So they basically hid the report of uh, of Borman's sickness in a big data dump to try to keep <laughs> no it out intended. of... Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Thanks. That's a bunch. <laughs> they also, the crew also experienced sleep difficulties. They basically had to start sleeping whenever they could instead of... Um, sleeping on schedule because they they just couldn't fall asleep when they were supposed to and they were falling asleep when they weren't supposed to so they they just abandoned the sleep schedule and to add insult to injury 
Um, they tried to do a TV broadcast and it was completely miserable. They tried to show the earth at the window and they couldn't because uh, it was overexposed. They didn't have a monitor on the camera to know where they were pointing it. So all the folks on earth got to see was a couple of flashes of a too bright earth that, that just looked like a big white circle. So not the most glorious uh, beginning to the trip. But uh, there was one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we move on. Something really interesting happened uh, while they were in orbit of the moon. So Lovell was, while they're in orbit of the moon, um, Lovell's using the DISCI, the, the display keyboard interface for the Apollo guidance computer, to command attitude changes so that he could check the positions of stars using the sextant, right? So basically, most of the time what you want to do is say, uh, okay, point the sextant at this guide star, and then you look through the, through the sextant and measure the distance that you're off and enter that distance into the computer to do fine tweaks. Um, but while he's doing this, he accidentally cleared the orientation, the stored orientation. Um, so now uh, the IMU thinks that it's in the orientation that it was before launch, right? He basically reset the orientation of the spacecraft. So the all of a sudden the spacecraft goes, oh crap, I'm pointing in the wrong direction. You wanted to point at that star. Let me slew over and point you at that star, um, which is not what Lovell intended to do. He didn't mean to uh, point the spacecraft at a random location, essentially. Um, so he had to go and rebuild the orientation from scratch. Um, so instead of um, fine-tuning the orientation, he had to rebuild it um, by manually moving the spacecraft to point at each of these guide stars. And it it took, I think, like a half hour, you know, like 15 minutes to find the guide stars and 10 minutes to do the calculations and data entry. Like, you know, it's this, it's this fairly long period of time. But it was surprisingly a, a good practice for Apollo 13. So later on, uh, Apollo 13 also was in the same situation where they didn't have the exact attitude programmed into the computer. And that was because they shut down the command service module, right? Um, to, to save power, they completely shut down the computer. And so when they booted the computer up, uh, Lovell got to do this exact same routine uh, that he had already done on Apollo 8. And of course, you know, it's it's a routine that he had already practiced on the ground. It wasn't like this was something that nobody had ever expected to, to do. Um, but it's really cool that he got to do it live with real hardware actually in space uh, in a safe situation around the moon. And then, you know, having to do it in, in a more critical situation uh, coming home on Apollo 13. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. That is cool. So the clue for next week we have, uh, I, don't know, <laughs> I guess, is it giving away too much to say that this one might be even more well known, yeah, easier, definitely more in the in the culture zeitgeist. Um, mm. But yeah, so so we're not doing a show next week. So this is two weeks ahead in the future. So two weeks ahead in 2015, the clue was running out of juice. And thank you to uh, Dennis Juice for coming up with that clip. <laughs> and if you think you know what that is about, then just give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Moving on then to the one upcoming spaceflight event. That's it. And <laughs> what would that be? <laughs> yeah. All right. So I get to do this one because I'm really passionate about one of the payloads. So this is a Rokot with a Breeze KM upper stage. And it's flying Gonets M24, Gonets M25, Gonets M26, and Blitz M. So, so the GoNets um, network um, or constellation is a uh, communications satellite network, um, and they uh, do ecological and industrial 
uh, monitoring. That's cool. Um, what's really cool is the Blitz M microsatellite. So Blitz stands for ball lens in the space. So I, I think we've start, we've talked about Blitz in the past, but it's really cool because the, the first one was launched in September of 2009 and it was actually destroyed um, <laughs> during the, the Chinese um, weapons test. Um, they, they ended up um, snagging the blitz. So this is a replacement and it's really cool. It is a hemispherical retro reflector. So I really love retro reflectors because I get to work with one in my job and then we have a bunch of them on the moon and then they're present in all sorts of different things on earth like you know stop signs and, and other traffic signs have many retro reflectors built into it's just I, I love them um, but this is a hemispherical retro reflector so it's actually um, nested glass balls and then half of it is painted with a reflective uh, covering so light comes in and then comes back out in the same direction and it's you know Basically, a, a full hemisphere has this retroreflective property. Um, but what's really neat is that it doesn't have any metal on board, so it's not affected by the Earth's magnetic field. And so uh, you can study orbits very, very precisely with this. So, so basically, it's a retroreflector for laser rangefinders. Uh, you know, it's a la laser rangefinding target. Um, they're going to use it to validate some systems as well as collect data on the specific orbit that they um, want to put more GLONASS satellites into. So pretty cool. <laughs> um, it looks really mm -hmm. bizarre. Go ahead and, and Google it because it, it really is a, a cool little piece of hardware. So anyway, all of this is flying on December 26th at 2312 UTC, and it's an instantaneous launch window. And uh, this one, uh, of course, it's a it's a Rokot, so it's flying out of Plesetsk uh, in Russia. All right, so that is your one upcoming spaceflight event. So with that, let's deal with the show. When we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our five dollar and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theobermechanics.com/support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for vision patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next year on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.